From the campus of the University of Kentucky, you're listening to Behind the Blue. Now in his 11th year at the helm of UK's largest college, Mark Cornblue is currently the longest serving of UK's 18 deans. The College of Arts and Sciences spans the liberal arts and hard sciences, social science fields, and new and emerging areas, such as dual degree programs that focus on world languages and so-called STEM areas of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Dean Cornblue is an innovator in thinking about and acting on new approaches to teaching, learning, research, and discovery. I'm Cody Kaiser with UKPR and Marketing, and I'm joined by UK's Chief Communications Officer, Jay Blanton. On this episode of Behind the Blue, Dean Cornblue talks with us about trends in teaching, the importance of diversity, and the special points of distinction that make UK stand out in the 21st century. Dean Mark Cornblue is our guest on Behind the Blue this week. You are the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, also a professor of history. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. And you are the, uh, we want to be clear about this, you are the longest serving dean here at the University of Kentucky, correct? Yes. Um, this is my 11th year, which in uh, dean years or dean of arts and science years is about 77. <laughs> so I'm also the longest serving dean of this college since the middle of the 19th century. So no one else has lasted this <laughs> long. No one else lasted this long in the 20th century. <laughs> I, and I, so you know, I'm assuming in, in dean years, a lot of, you've been witness to a lot of changes uh, in that sense. Yeah. Um, Yes. Well, sort of a rejuvenation of the campus is the first thing that one notices. I mean, that we, we always had a beautiful campus, and now we have some really incredible modern facilities in our college, the um, uh, Jacob Science Building, which is designed for active learning, is just adored by the students. And um, it's called the Science Building because our uh, basic science labs are in there, but it's actually used by lots of humanities and social science students. Uh, I mean, in, in the course of a week, I used to know these figures. I mean, it's like 60,000 students pass take classes in that building in any given week. It's unbelievable. So it's, you know, it, it impacts the entire student life. And um, it's designed for active, engaged learning. And, um, and then, you know, a new student center that, you know, you can just feel the, the vibrancy on campus. Um, you know, the students like being there. They hang out there. It, you know, it takes what's going on on in the classroom and extends it over the course of a day. I'm sure that's infectious too, the, the, the energy of having new facilities like that for, for recruitment for the college, for the university overall, but also for the college to be able to show this off, these spaces off to potential new students that come in. Yeah, well, we designed the science building with an anteroom to the largest lecture hall to demonstrate what an interactive lecture hall is. And so every prospective student walks through there and sees that classroom. And um, yes, it's, you know, a, a, it's certainly a top five basic science building anywhere in the country. And that's really attractive to students. But equally important, if you walk in there any day and look in the windows, and all the classes have windows, so we, the idea was to to make science visible, you could feel the pulse of excitement from the students in the classrooms. It's just, uh, you know, faculty love to teach there because students like to learn there. Um, you know, it, 
It may seem banal that we're worried about, uh, you know, the furniture and the chairs and the like, but it's really designed for students to be an active part of their learning. Um, can I give you one example? Yeah. So the, um, you know, probably for as long as uh, scholars have been teaching statistics courses, statistics courses have been hated by many, many students as one of the dreadliest dull subjects. <laughs> um, and um, we, we teach our large stats courses. Every student at UK has to take a stats course. Um, it's taught completely active learning, no lectures. The students have, we have our designed a room in that building where the students sit around the monitor in tables and the teacher walks around and they, um, and, and they basically figure out problems in real life and they learn stats that way. And, you know, I just, um, I just smile walking by looking at what that classroom looks like, knowing what our stats lecture halls used to look like 10 years ago. And that's, that's a great example, I think. I think I'm getting a, a little glimpse of somewhat of your sales pitch. But, <laughs> but I, I, I did want to ask, what, what do you tell a prospective student and what do you tell a prospective faculty recruit about both the college and UK when you're recruiting them here? Well, you know, for students, we talk about the value of a liberal arts education. And liberal arts is the, you know, the arts, the humanities, the social sciences, and the natural sciences. So we're talking about biology and chemistry and geology, the world we live in. Um, and, you know, I, so fundamentally, I talk about the value of a four-year college experience to go away from home, even if you live in Lexington, to go away from home, um, immerse yourself in a campus, and, you know, it opens the world to you to think critically, to be able to write, to be able to read, to be able to understand numbers, to understand science. Um, and then we give them lots of articles that show them that over the course of a long lifetime, a liberal arts career is the most proper, pro profitable undergraduate education to have. Um, we live in a time where a lot of uh, I think parents and students are concerned about the economic future and they don't really know how does this course lead to a career. And part of the story we have to tell is we're not here about teaching one course to lead to a career. We're here to teach a talk about a really broad, critical education that leads to a lifetime of productive jobs. I mean, the average person today is going to change jobs seven times. The careers that people had have when they graduate in four years won't exist in 20 years. So we're preparing students for really to be successful learners over the course of their career. And, um, and you know, you can't look at what the first check is going to be. You have to look at what the long-term salary is going to be. And there are lots of studies from both the right and the left, from the American Enterprise Institute to humanities institutes, institutions that show that, you know, an English major, a philosophy major, a biology major do, do actually do better over time than many people who major in business and major in engineering. Our students may go get an MBA in t eight years after graduating and having experience experiences, or they'll get a master's of public health, or they'll get a public policy, or they'll go into business and, you know, use their communication and their quantitative skills. So, so we, we sell the value of, you know, of a broad-based liberal arts education, first and foremost. Um, and then we talk about, you know, this campus, what we're trying to do to, you know, we really work to build community. Um, we 
our closets are so different than it was 10 years ago, 30 years ago. I, I remember forever telling my students, your work is only your work. You don't share it with anyone else. Now we walk in and we say, we're going to do collaborative group work as well as your own work. And you have to understand the difference between the two. And part of what you need to be successful over your career is to learn how to work with other people, other people who are different than you, other people who are trained differently than you. Um, so, um, you know, class after class, we have students doing research projects together, students doing internships together, students solving problems together, making videos together, doing, uh, I can't tell you how many classes we have students make podcasts um, because it's about, you know, putting together a podcast needs a lot of different skills. And um, and then they, so they're getting practical skills and that might be in a sociology class um, and they're learning to work with each other. So, so we talk about, you know, the type of active engaged education as well as the value of a liberal arts education. It, it would seem, too, that the diversity and variety in the, the educational experience of being able to work with others and, and being able to experience uh, topics of study that are so different lend themselves well to our current kind of world and we're, we're such a more interconnected world now the problems that we have in the world seem so much more interconnected and the solutions seem like they may come from so many different places that that can assist in trying to alleviate problems that we have uh whether they're problems of resource or problems of uh, economics or whatever it, it seems like that broad education is more is very important and, and ties in well with, uh, you know, those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So you really have two ideas there you're talking about. One is an interconnected world, and we are committed to a global education for the 21st century. Um, I came here from Michigan State, which called itself a world-grant university, not just a land-grant university, and I came at the same time the university built an office of internationalization, and we've worked very hard to internationalize our faculty and our curriculum. And, you know, when, when I grew up, Europe was a long way away. Today, you know, it's in everyone's pocket. And you have to be able to cross the world and understand differences and understand similarities. And that's an essential part of a 21st century education. Um, the second piece is to be able to collaborate with people different, that you said. And, and that's about, you know, it's people who look different, have different religions, different cultures, maybe different values. But it's also people with very different training. Um, as dean, I visit a lot of alums and I, you know, talk about the value of the university. And I recently was visiting a um, petroleum company down in Texas where a lot of our geologists were, have worked. I think we have 10 employees at this, at this company. Not a single one of them works with another geologist. They work on teams of 10 with an economist, with an environmental engineer, with a lawyer, um, you know, Basically, they bring different skills together on a team in a collaboration. So they're, you know, they're not going to go into a job where they're going to work with 42 people who studied the exact thing. They have to be able to bring their expertise into a work environment with people who don't know that expertise, and that's what makes them valuable. So, so that type of ability to collaborate is really important. That sense of collaboration, do you, is, that, is that, you know, one of the critiques here, you spoke to the critique about liberal arts education and its value. But one of the other critiques you hear now of higher education about is about 
how online and technology is going to replace the residential college experience. But I kind of hear you saying that you, it's hard to replace that idea of face-to-face -face interaction and meeting people in person from different cultures or... At, so I'm a deep believer in the, you know, in, the, in sort of the research one, land-grant, flagship, physical campus. And I think what we've done over the last six years, decade, has given us a huge future here. And, you know, um, I, so I'm a modern American historian by training. So I think about the value that college education plays over history and in a life cycle and having people go away. And you could even go away in the same city, but go away for four years, not five maybe, not six, not seven, but a four-year period at an early time in your life mm -hmm. gives you an independence, sets you up, you get to meet other people. There's nothing that replaces that. And, you know, we we have the physical facilities and the will to, re to make that perfect for our students in the 21st century. Um, on the other hand, I would say that teaching online has changed a lot in the last decade. So, you know, and there's a, there's a confluence here of how they work. I mean, we've learned how to use technology to be a lot more interactive. So that stats class I was talking about, they got screens, they got computers there, as well as sitting next to each other. Um, and the students who are taking our online classes, we're using software to put them into groups. Mm -hmm. We're making them write introductions about each other to each other so they get to know each other. So where you, you know, there's now video chat facilities, ability, you know, an online class, they could see the other six students in their group up on a screen and be doing stuff together. So, right. so you know, we, we, we have been cautious in expanding online at this university, and I think we're doing it in the right way, and we're doing it in a way that replicates the type of interactive experience that we want in our classroom. Yeah, I know during your time as dean, um, you've continued to teach. Uh, talk a little bit about what you teach, how you teach it, and how that's changed. Because I know you're using tech, you're using lectures in the classroom, but you're also using some of the technologies you're talking about. You're using in the classroom as well. Why is that important to you to continue to teach, and what do you get out of that? Well, you know, so I'm responsible for the College of Arts and Sciences, and continuing to teach really helps me understand the students that I don't in any other get to do in any other way. There's, you know, I do lots of budgets, I worry about legislation, I talk to donors, so teaching grinds me, grounds me in the students. It gives me a lot of street cred with my faculty, so I not only teach, I teach a co-teach a 200-student class, so we teach a large class, and you know, and teach a class that's not 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 honor students, but students who are you know first-generation students and students for whom college is a challenge. So, so I can speak of the the experience of teaching from having done it myself. Um, so I team teach with uh, associate provost Kathy Kern, who's also a historian. Um, for the last several years, we've been teaching a course called Civil Rights, Equal Rights, um, and it's um, 
American constitutional rights through history. I don't know what the subtitle is exactly, but but basically we you know we we teach history completely different than we both were trained to do, and then we did when we started out. So we start with recent events. You know, we actually don't know what the first week is until that week's news, and we take an incident in the news and we get them to evaluate what are the sources, how are they getting information about it, and then we use that to you know to look back and. So what's the usable past? How do we understand that in American history? So, for example, the, you know, two years ago we had controversy over the Confederate mon- monuments in right. town. So they read articles about it. They read different sides about it. They, you know, we had there were analysis that showed when these monuments were put up. What does it mean? You know, what does it mean that if a monument's put up right after the Civil War by the people who lost a brother or a father in the war, as opposed to put up at the time of the civil rights movement to say, hey, we're never going to have civil rights. Those right. monuments mean something different at the time they were put up, and they mean something different today. And so we use that as basically a doorway to go back into American history. Um, so the second module in class starts with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by the creators with certain inalienable rights. And what the, what those ideas are and who did who wasn't included in 1776 right, and right. who's included in the 19th century and who's included today so um, and we've been I think we've been able to do this in a way in a very polarized political time that all the students in our class were comfortable with I mean we had you know students who were actively engaged in black student organizations and we had students wearing Make America Great hats to class together. And we were able to foster a dialogue and help people understand, you know, the sort of the roots of some of their ideas in uh, over the course of American history and also understand other people's point of view. How do you engage 200 students in that kind of conversation? That's a lot of, to, to the outsider, <laughs> that, would, that would seem to be a lot of folks to have engaged in sort of active learning or conversation. Yeah, so that so so we design these classrooms so one has 200 and one has 300 so that they have two rows of seats and they turn around and the students can talk to each other. So in this class for example, Kathy and I put all the students in groups of six and we actually assign them and we assign them by divert by having varied students so they're men and women, people of different colors, people of different majors in the same group um, and you know, we often introduce an issue and then we tell them to work on this as a group. And we use the technology. We actually use simple technology. Usually we use Google Docs. So if they do a share, you know, we have shared Google Docs. The six students will have one document and they'll answer some questions on that. And I, you know, we can walk around the room and talk to the different groups, but I can also stand at the front and see which, what, what each of the 34 groups are doing in real time. And then we'll come back together and usually I'll call on the groups that have good and exciting answers or are comfortable to talk about it. And then so we, so we go into a small group and bring it to a big discussion. We go back into a small group and so we make it personable in that way. And, um, 
almost to a person. I'll say 198 out of the 200, say, working in their groups. They're, these are all first-year students. It's like the best experience they have first years. They get to know these six students. Um, they get a community, and um, they enjoy those discussions. And, and you know, so, so there are 34 groups of six rather right. than, you know, 200 individuals. And, and, and usually there's someone in each group who's willing to talk. Right? Kathy's very sensitive to the shy students. I put them more on the spot, but <laughs> how, how hard is it for students to make? You know, we read read and hear a lot about students are always on their phone, or they're not looking up, or they're not talking to people. How hard is it for students? Do you find it's hard for students to make that transition to where all of a sudden they're then working in groups and they're talking and they're in this kind of fostering so, a sense so of collaboration? It's easier than five, six years ago. I really? think a lot of this has come back into the high school, so they're used to a lot more collaborative work and okay. group work, and it's not a surprise. I remember... You know, the first time we had students come in and we gave them a seating chart where to be, there was lots of grumbling. Um, now they're, you know, now they're not at all surprised. They're going to be put in groups, and and the syllabus has the group. You know, part of their grade is a group grade. Part of their grade is an individual grade. They actually grade the other members of their group, so they hold each other responsible. Um, we're dealing with controversial subjects, so the students write a. They actually have a contract of how they're going to treat each other. They all sign. They, they, we give them samples from the year before, and they sign a, write out a contract and sign it about treating each other with respect. And, uh, and the, you know, we, they're they're much more comfortable in this than they were before. So it's not, it's not hard. It's not a challenge anymore in that sense. Do you get a lot of uh, you get a lot of feedback from other faculty who, you know, are in these spaces in the, using this type of technology uh, who are also. Maybe they've been teaching for a while, and, and over the last several years, they've seen some of these changes, and it's energized them and helped them change their approach on things? Yeah, cer certainly from some of our faculty, and especially in the sciences. So, you know, I'm talking about a controversial subject, but, you know, our science, you know, general chemistry, they're, you know, they are general chemistry faculty knows how important it is to get this building block class. Um, general chemistry is the single moat class with the single highest enrollment on the whole campus because it's the doorway to any science major, any engineering major, any health science major. Um, and they were frustrated. That, you know, it's hard for some of these students. There's a lot to learn. So, you know, our faculty and same in biology, our, our faculty have participated in national discussions about how to do more active learning, how to do more, um, you know, learning based on exploration and research. We've been very involved with the Howard Hughes Medical Institutes, which has been funding the idea that if you get students engaged in research, then they learn things more deeply. So our biologists are are on the verge of actually, again, for the second time, totally transforming their intro bio class so that every student basically will be doing research in their freshman biology class because that's, you know, there's lots of evidence say doing that type of applying knowledge is the deepest learning and that sets them up the best. You know, educational psychologists sort of have a hierarchy of learning from rote memorization up to being able to apply the knowledge. So what we're talking about here in these group work is really applying stuff. And um, so, so I think, you know, certainly in... Um, in our sciences, they've transformed the lower-level classes. We teach some really cool um, 
um, basically the math for people who aren't going into science is a math 111 class, which is, you know, basically understanding how math works for your lives is is a really, it's famous na- nationally. It was our math faculty that did it. It's done with all active learning. Um, the biologists use computers to do it. The mathematicians use Legos to do it. And they bring in Legos and they work, you know, work with their hands and understanding how math works in a real conceptual way. You're kind of speaking to some areas of, of innovation maybe among our faculty. Are there some things that you think people would be surprised to know about UK and our faculty? I mean, are some areas where you think we're truly differentiating ourselves or where we're excellent and people just don't know about it? Well, we really are, you know, we're we're in the top tier of research universities in the country, and there's no doubt about it. And, you know, what one of the joys of being dean for the last 10 years is to get to interview candidates and help decide who come here and see how they're pushing the boundaries of knowledge. So in biology, we've built this amazing group of young biologists who study regenerative biology, right? So there are animals, different animals through the spectrum that can regenerate things, excellent models can regenerate a leg. Um, There are different animals who can grow back eye tissue. There are other things that can regenerate um, skin. We hired a young biologist who found a mouse in East Africa that when attacked can run out of its skin and regenerate its skin. Well, this is fascinating for a basic scientist, but think about burn victims. Think about the implications for, you know, for uh, medicine. So, so you, so you have the, you know, this this whole group, whether they work on eyes or skins or limbs, and they're working in animal models. They're working in zebrafish and axolotls and um, rats. Um, yet, what they're doing has implications for medicine ten years from now, not a hundred years from now, and. And the way granting agencies fund research now, they're looking to fund from bench to bedside, from the most basic, you know, the gene gene level, basic particle level, up to applications. So, um, so that's one example of a great, of amazing group. Um, we have a group across our college and working with uh, the College of Medicine that looks at um, looks at drug and alcohol abuse and um, addiction. Um, you know, we've been at the forefront of looking at how to combat how drugs and alcohol basically ruin people's lives and how to change that on the neurochem- neurochemical level and on the behavioral level. Um, we study treatment, we study rehabilitation, we study how this works in neurophysiology, and having all of that together on one campus is awesome. You know, something I know we've talked about before that I wanted to get you to comment on is that something else that you're seeing in the higher ed kind of trade press and literature is this tendency to have more and have a reliance more and more on part-time faculty or adjunct faculty or contingent faculty, however you want to characterize it. But I know in the College of Arts and Sciences, we're bucking that trend. I'd like you to speak to that a little bit and why you think it's important to have that um, emphasis on full-time tenured faculty. Yeah, so when I came here, we really made the commitment and, you know, the whole faculty leadership of the college was on board that our tenure stream and tenured faculty were going to teach across the curriculum. We weren't going to 
outsource our intro courses, you know? You have to learn that general chemistry class if you're going to do anything else. Why would I pay someone a third or a quarter or a tenth of what I should pay someone to teach those core courses? So our faculty made the commitment that we're going to teach the intro courses all the way up to graduate courses. Um, and so we basically, over the first three or four years I was here, phased out all the use of contingent labor. I mean, occasionally someone gets sick and we have to hire somebody for a semester, but we have uh, very, very little adjunct labor. The only adjunct labor we have would, you know, we might hire a lawyer in town to teach a political science course on their specialty. We're not paying an underemployed PhD $2,500 to teach five writing courses. All our writing is done by full-time university employees. All, all of our math is taught by full-time university employees. And that means these people have offices they're available to the students. They're, they're accountable to the department and to me for the job they do. Um, they're accountable to their colleagues if things need to be improved. They're, you know, this is what a university is supposed to be like. We're a community of scholar teachers, and you know, we've made that commitment. Um, part of what it means is we, you know, we, we, you know. We're, we probably have more equity in the faculty, so rather than paying some people cheaply and others a lot, we've brought everybody up. Um, we, we paid, you know, livable wages to all of our faculty. I think you see it in job satisfaction. Happy teachers are better teachers. Being part of a community is better. You read in the Chronicle of people, you know, racing from school to school to teach one class in there, and we just decided we didn't have to do this, and, and we're not going to do it. And... Uh, you know, we, we're willing to pay sort of the cost to make sure that we that our students get our best faculty in the classroom. Put on, I wanna, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball for a second, but talk a little bit about what you think are some of the more, we talked about infrastructure, but in your time as dean, what have been some of the significant trends or things that have shaped the university? And then going forward, as you look ahead, what, what are things that you would identify as uh, things to watch out for for UK or higher education in general that you think are trends? So, so we're deeply committed in the college to building a more inclusive um, University of Kentucky. And, that, you know, a lot of my efforts in the last two years has really focused on this. And it, it, this, there are several parts of this. Part of it is having diversity in your faculty and your graduate students and your undergraduates. So um, we, we, as you know, we did a big cluster hire last year in African-American and Africana studies, and we have brought in six new faculty members. In the second year of that, we're going to bring in probably 10 to 12 new faculty members. So this really will change the, the, number, the number of African-American faculty on the campus in our college. It builds a critical mass, a community um, that can, you know, stud you know, students of color can identify with and work with. Um, so, you know, we, we've really made a commitment. You know, you know since I've been here, we tried to build diversity, we would hire two people and lose one person because right. there wasn't much of a critical mass here. Now, 
there's excitement around the country to what Kentucky is doing in terms of building a cluster higher. And it's it's about who the people are because you've got to be able to see yourself as a faculty member if you're a black undergraduate to, to imagine that career. But it's also about the type of curriculum we want to build. So we've been building a much more inclusive curriculum. So um, last year, the CPE approved, we made African-American and Africana mm-hmm. studies um, a major, so students can actually major in the in African-American studies, but, but it's an interdisciplinary major, and most of the courses come from different departments. So basically, this in the law, in over a two to three year period, this is adding breath to the curriculum in all of our humanities and social sciences, mm-hmm. um, and other colleges we could talk about in right. a mi- mi- minute are partnering too. So, so we have new history courses, English courses, anthropology courses. Um, this year, we're look, we're, uh, several of our searches are in the African diaspora, looking what's the Francophone African, fly, black Francophone world, right? Yeah. So we're Caribbeanist, West Africa. We're, we're going to hire in Hispanic, Afro-Hispanic world, too. Uh-huh. So departments, you know, Spanish department, and uh, it's going to have courses that will look at, you know, the Afro-Brazilian population or Afro-Argentinian population. So, so it really, it, it makes our entire curriculum really represent the entire world, and that's what we should be doing. So, so it's both about inclusive curriculum and a diverse faculty. Um, I am off to. Um, I just came back from South Africa. We are. We have a good partner in South Africa and University of Western Cape, where we're going to do faculty exchanges and bring more faculty members from South Africa here to teach our students. So they'll see a greater diversity of Black faculty mm-hmm. members. Um, and then I'm traveling with Sue Roberts in two weeks. We're doing the same in Kenya, Ethiopia, and Ghana, looking to build faculty exchange programs. Um, and we put more money in in the last several years to recruiting and supporting more diverse graduate students too because the graduate students have an interesting role here. They're, they're both students, they're studying for PhDs, right. but they're also teaching our undergraduates, so they help the undergraduates see a breadth of what people can accomplish. So we're, I'm, pre- I'm pretty excited about it, and, our, and the faculty are excited about it. They're the best recruiters of each other, so it's going really well. Uh, we're early in the hiring season. We just hired amazing young neuroscientist who's an African-American woman. Um, we've hired already two people to te- in our writing rhetoric and digital studies uh, department, so people who, will lo- who are African-American scholars and look at black English especially, and um, we will come back to you with a lot more exciting news in the next couple of months. Well, you know, that reminds me, as we kind of close out here, um, you talked about how you pitch students, but what's the, we're bringing in some exciting new faculty, diverse faculty. What do you tell them about UK that makes them interested to come here? Oh, so this is a great place to recruit students for. First of all, I love Lexington. I mean, Lexington is, you know, a wonderful, diverse, mid-sized city um, where with great schools for their kids to go to with, you know, if they like the countryside, you can bike, you can run anywhere. If you like this, you know, restaurants, we have a great restaurant scene. We have an art scene. Um, It's a very tolerant city. It's a city where, um, you know, if you've spent your 
World Courier, you don't realize how special it is how UK works with the city. Um, I mean, I just at the basketball game, I just saw the, the current, we just saw the current mayor yesterday and two former mayors, and they all know us and we all work together. And that's really special for a big university. The town and gown conflicts are everywhere. I mean, I came here from Michigan State where literally there were, you know, independent commissions had reported on three police riots where they had beaten up our students after students were celebrating a basketball game in 10 years. And here, you know, there's a real partnership um, between the city and the university where what, you know, we're a much, we're a relatively small campus compared to a Michigan state. Um, you have the opportunity to know everyone in town where the fact that the whole campus is together is to everyone's advantage. You know, we have two career couples, we have opportunities. There's lots, it's a campus that supports collaboration. Um, as you can tell, I get going really yeah. fast. I've been, I've been recruiting, interviewing uh, faculty candidates for next year all day today. And it's, um, that's a fun part of the job. It's actually not a very hard part of the job. The UK and Lexington sells itself really well to faculty. Our college is very young. So, so I've hired almost half of the faculty in 11 years. So, um, you know, it's just we've grown and there's been demographic shifts. So, so basically we offer them the opportunity to join a young, forward-looking faculty that will figure out what UK should be in 2040, right? That, you know, they're, they're not coming in, you know, to be the only young faculty member with six old white men on the faculty. They're coming in to be part of a young, dynamic faculty that has the opportunity to really change things for the future. And, and that's a good sales pitch in department after department. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you feel we've touched on, a, we've talked about a lot of different things and, and covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that you feel is important to, to make a point of? I've been very committed to, you know, several different eyes. So internationalization, I mean, I'm really proud of this. We've become much more international campus in a decade, and that means a lot. Study abroad goes up every year, the faculty who come here, so that's important. Um, we are, you know, I, I think we are cyber-enabled. We use technology in exciting ways, technology to connect people, not to isolate people. Um, in the college, we we even call our technology unit the hive because it joins people together like a hive and um, and that's you know building a cyber infrastructure on the campus and the college to support teaching and research has been important and we've gone a long way um, and we're a place that you know really makes interdisciplinary work it puts a priority on interdisciplinary work um, you know we've started a half a dozen new interdisciplinary majors in our college since I've been here. We partner with other colleges. Um, we partner with engineering. We partner with business. We partner with agriculture, with public health on different programs. So that, you know, if you come here, you know, being all on one campus, there really is an opportunity to work together. Um, and, you know, interdisciplinarity starts with strong disciplines, and we have the strong disciplines to build those connections together. And so that's exciting for faculty, and it's exciting for students. I have students majoring in health society and populations. Um, whoever would have heard of a major like that? But it's a really cool, broad-based liberal arts program that looks at health issues that ultimately will lead people to a master's in public health, a master's in public policy, to work in health-related areas.
areas with a broad-based liberal arts. Mm -hmm. That's you know we made this up. Our faculty made this up, and students love it. You know that's that's an example. Well, Dean uh, Mark Cornblue, thank you very much for your time. We greatly appreciate it, and uh, we know you're very busy, so we won't we won't take up any more of your afternoon. Well, thank you. It's thank a pleasure you. to talk with you. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Behind the Blue. For more information about this episode or any other episode, visit us online at uky.edu slash behind the blue. You can send questions or comments via email to behindtheblue at uky.edu or tweet your questions using hashtag behind the blue. Behind the Blue is a joint production of University of Kentucky Public Relations and Marketing and UK Healthcare.